The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for he either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Welcome to worship. Let me pray for us. Father, we do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in a sermon series on the seven deadly sins, and we've saved the best for post-spring break. So greed, gluttony, and lust. So just in case you thought what happened in South Padre or wherever you went, stayed in South Padre, think again. And today's deadly sin is greed. And ironically, it almost killed me this week. Literally, it nearly ran me over. I was in a yoga class on Monday afternoon, just off of Ben White, down south near Westgate Road. And around 4.45, a lady in this yoga class says, I think someone's car is being broken into. It's a white truck. And I drive a white truck. And so I ran out the door into the parking lot. And sure enough, there's a guy pulled up next to my truck, who had broken out both passenger side windows as silently, as quickly as possible, and taken everything of value out of there, including two shotguns that were hid very well underneath my back seat for a skeet shooting trip. And the guy had, had already been back in his car. And so barefoot, I run out there. There's glass everywhere. It's like Die Hard, a lot like Die Hard. <laughs> and I decide I'm going to punch his, win his window. And so I do that and it doesn't break. It just hurts really bad. So not like Die Hard. I thought afterward I should have used the elbow. If I'd gone with the elbow, it might have broken. But then he pulls out of there as fast as possible. Doesn't hit me, bumps me a little bit, but he gets out of there. And I run after him to try to get his plates, but it's a temporary paper plate, and so it probably a stolen car. And besides the shotguns, he stole my work bag, which had my Bible of 25 plus years in it. I know it's sad. It's really sad. And then my copy of Glittering Vices, as well as three past sermons on greed, which I had preached and printed off, <laughs> seriously, printed off for me to reread this week in preparation for this sermon, including two on Ananias and Sapphira, which these people die because of greed and lying and stealing. So I had hoped maybe that he would bring my stuff back and that he would write a note and say, I'm sorry, please tell God to not kill me. But that has not happened. So why did this guy smash my windows and why did he rob me in the middle of broad daylight in a busy parking lot? What could drive him to do such a brazen act and deed? And 
What drives us to do what we do with our wealth and with our possessions? The Christian tradition has called it greed or avarice. It's been defined as an inordinate and excessive attachment to money and the things that money buys. And this man is not alone in knowing it. You can't live in the United States, the wealthiest country in the world, maybe the wealthiest country in the history of the world, much less Austin, Texas, which is no longer just one of the wealthiest cities in our country, but really in the world as well. You can't live here and not be touched in some way by greed. So what does greed's touch do and how is it undone? Three points this morning about that, where greed is from, what it does, and how it's undone. First of all, where it's from. Uh, Let me define it a little bit more fully, and then we'll see if we can find its origins here in our text. Broadly speaking, there's two ways that we can talk about greed. We We can look at it from the outside in or the inside out. We can have an exterior view of it and an interior view as well. First of all, the exterior. Greed from an exterior view is just behavioral patterns of possession, of grasping and of holding on to things, uh, like excessive spending or excessive acquiring, whatever it may be, cars, shoes, stocks, whatever, or even excessive saving, what we would call hoarding also. These are all behavioral patterns of possession where we grasp after things and, and hold on to them. But there's also an interior view of greed, which is even more primary because as we've said, all of the vices, they are, they're spiritual in nature. They're issues of our hearts. And as I've said, this is an inordinate and excessive inner attachment to money and the things that it can buy in this world. So first and foremost, it's interior. We, we can see greed in how we live, but first and foremost, greed lives within us which is why Thomas Aquinas defined it as an excessive love, an excessive or inordinate love for things that we just love them too much. So greed at its core is too great a love for this world, for the things of this world, and for life in this world. But but don't, don't make the mistake of thinking that it just operates from inside out. All the vices operate from outside in as well. They're spiritual issues, but not exclusively spiritual issues because we're physical beings. And the exterior and the interior are always intimately connected for us, the physical, the spiritual, the the exterior and interior. And that means that any vice, any of the ones that we're talking about, they depend upon actions, bodily actions, repeated bodily actions that wear a groove or a pattern on our hearts and in the longings of our hearts. So that means that greed always has a physical face. And so it's a spiritual attachment to a thing that has a physical face. Rebecca DeYoung, Rebecca Cognac DeYoung in her book, Glittering Vices, that one that was stolen. This is what she says about greed. She gives lots of examples. She says, greed wears many faces, an overflowing shopping cart or a single cherished purchase, a stock portfolio that is aggressive or conservative, a wallet full of credit cards or a safety deposit box with a few carefully guarded treasures a garage full of expensive cars, or a closet full of great deals. And she goes on, but she says, in all its varied expressions of gain and grasping, however, greed is perverted love. She's kind of channeling Thomas Aquinas. She's an Aquinas scholar. It's perverted love. Its profile has disordered desire written all over it. And this word distorted, or I'm sorry, disordered, it's an important word in our tradition. It goes back to Augustine, where he's talking about the hierarchy of our hearts and some things moving too far up the hierarchy and us loving them too much, us loving them more than they deserve, more than God and people themselves. 
And so what are those things for you? To use her language, where does your perverted love lie and with what? Here's where it's from, one of greed's sources. It's what Josh preached on last week. If you're here, you know he preached on sloth, and he, he preached from the same Old Testament passage. I've printed the same passage from Genesis 19 here from me, for you, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, because it's not just about sloth, but also about greed, and I would argue as well as gluttony, and also lust as well, because it's this tangled story of intertwined vices, because that's the way the vices are. They oftentimes are not alone, but like a wreath with vines wrapped up and twisted around one another into something else, or like many different species of snakes right now in the way that they come out of hibernation and they breed, they tangle themselves together, they wrap themselves up together at this time of year. That's something along the lines of what's happening here in this text. So look at this text here at the top of your page on page seven. There's one sentence that reveals definitively what's going on with Lot, because he's not just a good guy in a bad place, who's about to enter into a really bad situation. Some of that may be true, but there's something much more, something deeper is going on with him. He is sick spiritually, and there's one very short three-word sentence that reveals it. It's there at the beginning of verse 16. Do you see it? But he lingered. He lingered. And why did he linger? Well, we linger over what we love, Sloth, as Josh said last week, it's not simply physical laziness, it's spiritual apathy. It's a disinterest or even a refusal to engage with God and engaging with God to be changed by God, to be changed into people who are more like him and fit for his presence. And so, as Josh also said, we're meant to be pilgrims in this world, traveling through this world to, to God himself and to, a, as Hebrews 11 puts it, a better home and a better country that God has prepared for us, where God himself is not this broken, darkened, dying world, but a better home, a better country to be traveling through it. But is Lot traveling here? No, he's lingering here. What's the first thing that's said of him? He's sitting. He's sitting. He, He's sitting at the city gates. He's no longer just lingering in Sodom. He's leading in Sodom. He's not passing through. He's putting down roots. And I often mention to you Psalm 1. You remember Psalm 1? What do I always tell you? Walk, stand, sit. Walk, stand, sit. There's this downward trajectory that we see there, and we see it here. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. He's sitting. He's sitting here. He's lingering because he's attached. He doesn't want less of Sodom at this point. He wants more of it. And so did he linger and then become attached? Or did he linger because he had become attached? And you know how I like to answer questions like that. Just simply saying yes. But what about you? And what about me? Where in this world do you linger? Over what of this world do you linger? What have you not been willing to give up for Lent? What have you did not even think about giving up for Lent? What is it that if I or someone were to come to you and say, you need to give this up, you need to part with it, at least for a little while, at least for the rest of Lent, you would hesitate, you'd linger. Maybe you'd try to make a deal with me, much like Lot does. We didn't print the whole story, but you know what Lot does when the angels say, run from the hills, get as far away from this place as possible, you know what he does? tries to cut a deal to, to mitigate the separation. He says, well, what if I just go to the next city over? 
because he's attached, deeply, spiritually, emotionally attached, and it's killing him. It nearly kills him. It does kill his wife. It says she looked back. She lingered and it killed her. So to what are you attached? This is where greed is from. But now what greed does, point two. Very simply, it makes you lie. To look at our New Testament passage, just look down the page there to Acts chapter four and five. It's another famous or infamous story about Ananias and Sapphira. How many people here are named Ananias or Sapphira? No one. How many of you are from a town called Sodom or Gomorrah? No one. It's funny things that we do with biblical names. But here it's not sloth and greed that are all wrapped up together, but rather greed and deceit. Raising the question, is this greedy deceit or is this deceitful greed? In other words, what's the greater issue? The lying or the greed? And you know, I like to answer questions like that as yes, but I think here we can't because it seems like deceit gets the greater emphasis because Peter begins both his, his comments, he both begins them and ends them talking about the deceit. Everything that he says about the greed comes in between what he says in verse three, which is why Satan filled your heart to lie. And then in verse four, you've not lied to men, but to God. It seems as though lying is the, the darker act, or maybe we should say the further step that the deeper move into this sin that's controlling him. In fact, we could say the overall sense of the passage is that their greed could have been dealt with differently. Because in verse four, he basically says, you didn't have to sell it. He says, Ananias, you didn't have to sell the land. You could have kept the land. You could have, because he says in verse four, after it was sold, was it still not at your disposal? In other words, you could have kept the land. You could have sold it and kept everything. You could have sold the land and, and given part of the proceeds of the sale. You could have done exactly what you did if you just would have done it honestly and openly and not lied. Lying was the thing that finally killed him. And I wonder if that's because when you begin to lie for your sin, that's when you know it's got you. When you begin to lie for it, that's when it's got you. That's when it stops being just individual acts of sin that you do think, say every so often, and it becomes a vice. It becomes a habituated way of being for you. So lying is what finally killed him, but greed's what got him there. And so is there anything you're lying about right now? Is there anything that you're keeping hidden? Maybe not directly lying about it, but just leaving it unmentioned or unconfessed or simply untold. Because if there is, now's the time. Now's the time to say. Now's the time to confess it. Now's the time to own up to it before your sin becomes a vice, before it has you, before it becomes deadly for you or for others. Now's the time. So friends, follow your lies to your vices and then confess your lies in order to break your vices grip on you. And one more thing, one more thing that greed does, it doesn't only make us lie, it also strengthens the lie. And what is the lie? What is the lie that's behind all sin and all vices? What's the lie? C.S. Lewis speaks about it in 
his book, The Screwtape Letters. Are y'all familiar with The Screwtape Letters? Many of you will be. It's this imaginary correspondence between two devils, one of a higher ranking office or position in Satan's legion. His name is Screwtape. And he writes letters to this lower ranking devil that reports to him his name is Wormwood. And Wormwood is responsible for one soul, for one person's soul and for gaining it and for keeping it from God so that they might feed upon this soul in eternity. And this is what Screwtape says to Wormwood. He says, the sense of ownership in general is always to be encouraged. The humans are always putting up claims to ownership which sound equally funny in heaven and in hell. And we must keep them doing so. We produce this sense of ownership, not only by pride, but by confusion. We teach them not to notice the different senses of the possessive pronoun, the finely graded differences that run from my boots through my dog, my servant, my wife, my father, my master, and my country to my God. And all the time, the joke is that the word mine in its fully possessive sense cannot be uttered by a human about anything. In the long run, either our father or the enemy will say mine of each thing that exists and especially of each man. They will find out in the end, never fear, to whom their time, their souls, and their bodies really belong, certainly not to them, whatever happens. So what's the lie? What's the lie? Speaks about it as a joke, the joke that the word mine in this fully possessive sense can't be uttered by us about anything, money and possessions included. Lewis speaks specifically about a body here in this quote. It's something of a preview for my sermon next week on lust and gluttony, because behind all sin and every vice is the lie of mine, that this is my body to do with what I choose to do, or this other person's body, this person that I'm dating, or this person that I look at. Their body is mine to do with what I want to do, or this food is mine, this drink is mine to do with what I want to do with it, or this money, these possessions, they're mine. No, they're not. No, they're not. And that's the lie. The lie in one sense, this is the lie behind all the power of sin, that I am my own, that this part of me, my wealth, my stuff, this world is mine. No, it's not. And the more you believe that, the more your vices squeeze, the more they squeeze. And eventually we become black holes, spiritual, emotional, financial black holes, sucking everything and everyone else into us, always taking, always consuming, always demanding, never giving, never sacrificing, never truly loving. And that's what the power of sin and the squeeze of vices do to us. So what are you saying? Of what are you saying? Mine. To yourself, to others, to God. What are you saying? This is mine. This part of my life. This part of this world. This is mine. If it's money or things, that is the voice of greed. If it's food or drink, that's the voice of gluttony. If it's physical flesh, your body, others' bodies, that's the voice of lust. It's wormwood. It's screw tape. That's what greed does. But now how is it undone? How is the vice of greed undone? One word, a simple word, generosity. 
That's the virtue that the Christian tradition has always put in opposition to the vice of greed. Generosity is what undoes greed, but not first and foremost, your generosity. Because as I've already said, your money is not yours. God doesn't want your money because guess what? It's his already. As I often say, there's no tithing at death. At death, everything is given back 100%. There's no tithing at the end of human history. At the end of the apocalypse, there's no tithing. Everything goes back to God. He's not after your money because he already has your money. It's already gonna come back to him. He's after your soul, just like screw tape, just like wormwood. He's after your soul, but not to feed upon your soul, but to give your soul himself to give his life and his love to you, he will do everything possible in order to get you. In fact, he already has. Because God the Father sent God the Son to earth to us. He gave us everything already. God the Father already gave everything to us. Those, those, those people like us who become black holes left to ourselves for too long. And he didn't leave us to himself or to ourselves, he came for us. Jesus willingly came. And what in this world did Jesus say mine over? Did you ever think about that? Did Jesus ever say mine of anything in heaven or on earth of God the Father? Did he say this is my relationship with God the Father? No, he came in order to share his relationship with God the Father with us. God the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit? No, he didn't say mine. He came to share the Holy Spirit. Anything in heaven? His very inheritance, that which belonged to him, no, he left it in order he might share it with us. And the earth, the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek, for they shall what? Inherit the earth, because it's his. And he came not to say mine, but to share it with us. And even his body, the very body of God, the very body that God took upon himself, he gave up dying on the cross for our sin and the consequences of our sin, all of our loss, all of our pain, all the pain you've known, that you've caused, that you've endured. In fact, in one sense, that's what he said mine over, over your sin and all the fallout from it. He said, I'll take that. That is mine. In order to take it from us, that we might know, that we might begin to believe that he truly does love us that much, that he might actually claim not simply our sin, but claim us as his. Because if you belong to Jesus by baptism, by faith, he does claim you as his. You need to know that. He does claim you as his own. And I wonder if that moves you, if that melts your heart, if it makes you love him back at all, because it can, it should. Do y'all remember the movie Ocean's Eleven? You remember what makes Tess, played by Julia Roberts, love Danny Ocean again and, and to leave her rich, powerful boyfriend, played by Tony Benedict, or Tony Benedict, played by Andy Garcia? Do you remember what makes Tess love Danny Ocean again? Well, it's this encounter that, that Danny Ocean has with Tony Benedict because Danny Ocean steals all his wealth from all of his, his, his Vegas casinos, all of an inordinate amount of wealth. And he sets up this meeting with Tony Benedict and he films it. He live streams it so Tess can watch it in real time. And he gives Tony Benedict a choice. He gives him an option. He says, I will give all of your wealth back to you if you do one thing. And what's that one thing? If you'll break it off with Tess. And he does it. Instantly, immediately takes that option. He takes all his wealth back and he gives up Tess. And in that moment, Tess realizes that Tony Benedict never loved her. Never, never loved her anything close to how much he loved all of his stuff. 
And she also realizes that Danny Ocean always loved her, that he loved her more than anything, that he loved her more than all of the wealth that he had stolen. In fact, the entire elaborate scheme to steal all the wealth was for that very moment to set up that very deal and that very video feed so that she could see that choice being offered and made. And immediately she loves him back. And she drops Tony Benedict and she goes back with Danny Ocean. Of course she does. So friends, your sin and your vice and everything that's behind them, screw tape and wormwood included, they don't love you. The world, the flesh, the devil, they don't love you. They want to use you. They want to feed upon you. But God loves you. He loves you far more than you could ever imagine. And in his divine generosity, he has given everything, everything over that you might love him back. And so will you love him back? Will you love him more, more than anything in this world, more than your wealth, more than your possessions? Because if you will, you will change. In fact, you'll become generous. You'll be changed from the inside out. But remember where I began, change doesn't just happen from the inside out. It also happens from the outside in. That's why we give tithes and offerings. It's not because God needs them. It's because he wants you and it's why it's one of our 10 spiritual formation practices, because the practice and regular discipline of costly giving, it protects and cultivates and fosters that which only the gospel can do, which is to, to make us generous. The gospel does that, but then our tithes, our offerings, it protects that, it furthers that, it, it, it cultivates them. And so don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't do it. We're Moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Let them go. Give them up. This is who God is, and this is who he is changing us as his people, and to be people of great, great generosity, because there's life in generosity. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would continue to pour out your spirit to minister your gracious word to us, that we might know you, that we might know all of that which you have done for us through your unimaginable generosity. We pray that your kindness and grace to us in the gospel, that it truly would transform us into a people like yourself, into a generous people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.